Greetings programs, hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie by minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. This is Minute 12, I'm your host Duncan Shields and with me today is my intelligent, focused, multi-talented and humanitarian guest co-host Chris Stewart. Welcome Chris. Most people don't know you have a giant one of those... uh Carnival prize wheels with all these superlatives on it. It's like annoying. It's like that episode of Futurama where they meet Gary Gygax. Hello, Fry. I'm pleased to meet you. Yeah, that's good. Uh, hi. Thank you for having me back. You're welcome. I'm glad to see you again. Thanks for coming back. No problem. The so this is minute twelve, and in it, Tron. I mean, Alan Bradley. And Dillinger, I mean Clue, I mean Dillinger, have a, um, oh, Sark. Sark. Oh, jeez, I got that wrong. Crom, Ram, Yori, yeah. old guy, whose w- name I forgot. Dr. Laura. <laughs> it's funny, in the in the movie, oh, Walter Gibbs, Dr. Walter Gibbs. Dr. Walter Gibbs. That's the, uh, the name of the. I like to pretend, I know our minute has nothing to do with him, but I like to pretend that this was his last job. There's that suggestion yeah. of retiring out and all that. Like they're like, we can let you go and all that. When Dillinger's ousted and all that, everything settles down. I think there's some, I don't know if it's in the book or in like, but Flynn assumes the mantle of the company somehow. Yeah. And it's in the movie too. And I think I like the idea that the doctor moves on to Santa Clara, California. Yeah. Yeah. Where he fights vampires. Yeah. All the damn vampires. All the damn vampires. Well, the funny part, not to derail too far, but he does weird, like academic kind of things, which is you don't have a TV. Why do you have a TV guide? If you have a TV guide, you don't need a TV. Like it's just these weird sort of yeah. inside your own head thing. Like he just, he's happy to read. Oh, oh, I see. They have trouble with their neighbor. Great. All right. Like he just doesn't need to watch the show. Well, and he does that here too. Does he? Yeah. When she says, uh, well, I mean, this is, uh, here goes nothing. I'll, I'll, yeah. He goes nothing. He goes, Oh, did you hear what you just said? Yeah. Here goes nothing. You might as well have said, here goes something, because we're about to make something into nothing. Into you know, nothing. like, he's like, uh huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. yeah, this all shakes out. He retires, takes his, uh, package. Because <laughs> again, grandpa seems to be doing, he's, you know, living on a small ranch in the hills. It's overlooking Santa Clara and just <laughs> seems to be doing fine. And seems to be doing fine. Then the Lost Boys attack. So in this one, uh, yeah, Dillinger and Alan Bradley are having themselves a little conversation and Dillinger is breaking down the fact that his access has been revoked and, uh, Alan Bradley's not too happy about that. And he starts talking about the computer program that he has designed called Tron, which dun, 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 like some, the movie. like some kind of hot tub time machine. <laughs> At least they don't go close up on his face. It's called Tron. They they didn't do anything like that. I like that the the description of what Tron is supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Which they don't quite get into. Or do they in this one? Let's see what the. I'm trying to remember the. Yeah, the time it frame. does. Yeah, yeah. In this one, they don't. Yeah, he doesn't get into the fact that it's independent, but he says it's a security program itself. Actually, it monitors all contacts between our system and other systems, finds anything going on that's not scheduled, and shuts it down. Yes, it'll be the next minute then that we get the the David Warner's awesome dead-eyed smile. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's this wonderful suggestion that he's a hotshot programmer. They're all they were all hotshots in their own area. So. Yeah. Flynn, whatever he was doing, was seemed to be making games, maybe, for yeah. the company. Yeah. 
Uh, Laurie's doing high-end research, laser research. Pretty serious high-end research, yeah. And he's doing what? Because he's sitting in a, a, a cubicle with, as we talked about before, a guy making actuarial programs, right? Like, yeah, he's on the floor. He doesn't seem to be a superstar. But he is kind of acknowledged to have – well, that's what I mean about the popcorn <laughs> popper. I'm like, is that a perk because he's perk really – Something he's allowed to have. Um, but at the same time, you'd think if he was a – this actually could be a part of the discussion. Is is he high – or did Laurie just sort of go from the bad boy to the safe guy? And he's not really anything super hyped in the company. Otherwise, you'd think Dillinger would know what he's working on as opposed to being surprised that he's basically yeah. said, I've created a very sophisticated security program that will monitor systems. And he goes, oh, crap. <laughs> Well, it's also something to be said for um, still waters run deep. Like Alan Bradley is this, he's almost like the Clark Kent to Tron Superman, mm. right? Like he's written this program that's a warrior on the inside. Yeah. Unstoppable. But, he's um, created a program that has been taken over and yeah. still has not been broken down. But on the outside world, he is employee number 836. He works amongst what looks to be at least 600 other desks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting take on him. I think there's something to be there's something there for sure. Yeah. Cuz if he was a superstar, it would be a different conversation that he has with Dillinger. Yeah, there's a lot to it that suggests he is not an ex he's, he's not a super active superstar like Flynn was an ex is a, is an ex superstar. One of them being, for example, if you go into the system. Again, it goes to the story thing. If he was a superstar, it doesn't matter what the level is. <laughs> uh, so, well, actually, no, that would still work. MCP would go, you're locked out. But yeah. if he was a superstar, it didn't have to have go see Dillinger to find out what's going on. He would just top up and march into Dillinger's office and go, yeah. what the hell? Listen, buddy. Listen, buddy. But instead, he's, if you want to know, go on up. So, yeah. Uh, so he still has to kind of tread corporate and he's also, hierarchy. He's a by the books guy. Yeah. He's a straight shooter, he's a square Joe. Which is the only reason they rope him into all... Well, A, he's building programs that keeps everybody on the, the okie-dokie. Uh, and B, he himself is roped into this shenanigans because the shenanigans is to stop shenanigans. Yeah, right? he's like, like the honest cop. Yeah, basically. I don't like how you're doing this, but uh, I'll look the other way. Yeah. Uh, so Dillinger, when he sees Dillinger, he's, he's always watching him approach his office on the security camera feeds on his obscene desk. I always got a, that desk. It's like a battleship. And uh, he shuts down his desk, and then he does one of my favorite things that bad guys do. Power move. Power move. He turns Total away. power move, yeah. He turns away. He shuts down his desk, and he turns away to look out the window. He turns off the evidence that he saw him coming, and then turns away. Seconds before he comes in the door. He turns away. Yeah. Alan Bradley comes in. He spins around in his chair. Oh, yeah. I, didn't I did like it. the the Doctor Evil esque uh, allow entry, deny entry. Yeah, the giant big, button. It's <laughs> almost like like there should be a third one that says trap door. Trap door. Right. <laughs> it was just two big buttons on his desk. Like enter, don't enter, and exterminate or something. Yeah, it was funny. What I just realized coming up next uh, in rewatching it again, how language has shifted. Yeah, I think it's societal but of course i'm a dad like you're a dad it's possible that this phrase has been corrupted just because we're dads that have to shout at tiny humans and we've shouted this many times but he stands up which is cordial yeah corporately cordial gestures to a chair and says sit down 
Yeah, yeah. Whereas we say, like, it feels to me like more often, hey, come on in, have a seat. Yeah. Like there's an invid- The It used to mean sit down with a gesture was completely invitational, just like have a seat. Innocuous and kind. Now sit down is kind of the the jerk thing to say. There's almost like a TF in the middle there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And like I said, I kind of wondered for a while if it's just because I've yelled it at a tiny human no, lots. There's but- a, there's, no, there's an edge to it. Yeah. He's the boss. It's a bit of a power move. He's like, he's not saying, oh, sit down. Yeah. If you want to take a load off, he's saying, come on in and sit down. Sit down. You know, like, I think there's a, and a, and a sit it's down. A, it's a weird balance because he didn't have to, if it was completely an order, he wouldn't have stood up. Yeah. But he stands up and gestures and then goes, sit down. This whole conversation is like that. He's being very polite while yeah. being a super douche about it. And he's, he's, he's flexing. He's flexing hard yeah. on Alan, but he's, He's talking to him like, yeah, we're both, we both know, we both know the game here. We both know how it is. We're both men of the world. Your clearance has been revoked and will be for a couple of days. Sorry. And it, it won't be that big of a deal, I'm sure, but get yeah, out of my office. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. Obviously, uh, Alan doesn't wield a heck of a lot of power because two days of programming time? That's a lot. That's a lot of time. What's he supposed to do, right? Hang out at his desk and like draw pictures? Like, well, here's the thing. I, know from personal experience that if for example off our offsite server yeah where our code safe is and all that if it goes down for any reason like if there's a maintenance up thing or whatever the guys just keep working at their machines they'll just update to it later when the thing comes back on yeah in that in tron the thing about the terminal computing is it's not like he can keep programming and then just yeah. put it up later. He's lost access to his ability to code on the project. That's it, yeah. And two days, especially two days in an era where you can get a lot of programming done in an era where really the things you're asking the computers to do are nowhere near where they're at these days, right? Yeah. Like run some, you know, I work in games, so the amount of time it takes to just to program a weird little mechanic feature or something like that days and days and days days and days and days and days two days in a world where you know an actuarial program (laughs) probably was a week's project sort of thing like yeah so alan two days god that's got a that's a lot of lost time and yeah what does he do and the weird part is is that dillinger's like yeah what are you gonna do it's like yeah you're paying that guy for two days to make popcorn like what's what's going on yeah but i think it's also dillinger's like I revoked the access. Yeah. So, yeah, you can all just uh, hang out and twiddle your thumbs for two days. Yeah. Um, Well, certainly a much different conversation from when the doctor shows up later, who never sits down. They're both standing and very confrontational. And they're very forthright. It's like, you know, you can be replaced. Well, what's that supposed to be? (laughs) He's so good in that scene. I'm looking forward to talking about that scene. Yeah. What's the actor's name again? Uh, Bernard Hughes. Bernard Hughes, that's right. I had to write Dr. Walter Gibbs about 5,000 times. <laughs> so I think I washed his real name out of my head when I was doing the notes. Um, so yeah, Alan walks past some extremely minimalist art in a frame. Mm. It's just a white, it almost looked like there's nothing in there. And then uh, another couple of statues, a couple of, uh, looks like almost Mayan bowls or something like that. Right. In little gray alcoves in the, in the, in the runway hallway leading up to the Dillinger's office. And then he, it's that same awful 70s folied footsteps. Yeah. Clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop. And, uh, 
it's a real throwback to a different era. Those foliage footsteps are like, ooh, you just pulled <laughs> footstep number six off like a <laughs> the studio sound effects uh, tapes or something like that. Yeah. Once they get into his office, they stop because I think his office is carpeted. But that hallway, it's the same with with Dillinger walking like up in an hall, earlier yeah. minute. Yeah. And then we see, uh, yeah, we see he comes in and we get a really good shot of him and his blue collar uh-huh. is wide. Yeah. And it's uh, splayed out across his beige corduroy suit. <laughs> and you can it, see some real fantastic collars, uh, collars at uh, Flynn's later on. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And this is, this is, 82 yeah right but that we forget that we forget right 82 was still kind of disco era in yeah. a lot of ways the 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 in our heads and in the books fashion has these hard ins and outs but in real life they they bleed like ni- the 1980s yeah. didn't become the 1980s until like 1985 the one right? that i use to reset my brain like the prescri- perspective is the Mad Men of the early '60s versus the the Love Generation of the late '60s. Right? Yeah, for sure. In a sim- single ten year, like we like to lump things into a decade. Yeah. So if you say the '60s to somebody, they're like, "Oh yeah, hippies and all that yeah, sort of thing." Forgetting that the beginning of the '60s was very '50s in a very lot of ways. Very '50s, yeah, hard '50s. So it's um, yeah, in this one, again, shout out to Wendy Carlos. There's no music in this one, but that soundtrack is pulled it out of time yeah 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 and made this movie run like have legs that run a lot longer yeah it's un- yeah cause it's not like lady hawk or something where the soundtrack is like oh what have you done what oh you my done? god this yeah. is rooted in a one year like if you watch similarly era disney movies it would have had you know the giant abc orchestra or whatever yeah. With we talked about before the guy on the rhythm guitar, and strings like yeah, electric guitar strings, not a good match. No, no, uh, they really didn't go together. But boy, they gave it a shot for ten hard years there. To be honest, what's one of the great things about this movie is because we spend so much time in this stylized and decently rule set at computer space. The movie's got a lot of timeless legs to it. It even, does. It does. Like even watching these bits, the 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 suit is not too far off business casual. Yeah. these days, the, not the, too far the, off. To be honest, the collars is it. Yeah, Dillinger in his suit, fine. Dillinger in his suit, his ab- assistant a- with the with the navy blue and the the kind the, of private school uniform. It's, it's, it's not great. Uh, Alan, not not too bad. Like I said, but the collars kind of give it away. Uh, Flynn, we see wandering around, t-shirt and a jacket, perfectly fine, timeless. Uh, she even hers is kind of muted, given that women's fashion really runs back and well, forth. Well, she's a lot. wearing a blazer and jeans and uh, sort of high heel sneakers. Yeah, and uh, but it really does also come across as kind of timeless. Like the dated stuff that happens in the real world is mostly centered in Flynn's with the crowd shots. With the crowd, the crowd shot, uh, the doctors, and all, in the research, they're all research garbed up. Yeah. Even when he goes up to Dillinger's office, he's wearing a sweater, right? Like he's yeah, wearing yeah. old guy. I'm not wearing my lab coat anymore. Sweater, yeah, perfectly fine. Yeah, and like I said, and then the music is serves the computer side. I like. Rather uh, than the, the real world side. Alan Bradley's glasses, I like. They've got these gold bars across the top. I can't tell if it's their thick glasses and it's the light reflecting or if he has like oh, a gold gold frames on I his glasses. Notice. They're pretty big, but they're not like 
outrageously. They big. still they kind of look cool. They don't. They're not like uh, you can. Let, well, we they're not like they're not world. like 1950s nerd glasses, but they're also not like giant Sally Jesse Raphael glasses. Yeah, that, they're they're kind of stylish. Hipsters would wear those glasses. Hipsters would wear these glasses just fine, easily. Yeah. yeah, no problem. Like I said, you can get away with little, Ghostbusters has the same thing. Yeah, Ghostbusters two. I've said this before. I apologize. My world runs through a filter of Ghostbusters quite good. a bit. Ghostbusters 2 ages not as well as Ghostbusters 1. Oh, yeah? Ghostbusters 2 is very 80s in a lot of way. Yeah, sure. Like Janine is suddenly got a weird Bob haircut and very uh, late, late 80s turning into the 90s kind of fashion sure. sense and all that. The guys are okay, but there's bits in here and there where you're like, oh, boy, this is kind of, yeah. yeah. The first one, you know, they're wearing academic tweed. Uh, you know, Dana's kind of... Yeah casually like there's not a lot that makes you go oh right we're in the 80s yeah yeah oh that's wild except for the cars i guess but (laughs) (laughs) and even in this one we don't get to see much we get to see a helicopter that's mocked up to pretend it's kind of uh there's a a bit of a and even that's that's kind of timeless too though right it is I'm wondering how they did that. I know this is not my minute, uh, and I wonder what you guys talked we about because I haven't we heard talked, it yet. Yeah, we talked about it in the uh, in the last minute uh, that I did with Alan Sanders, and what they did from the Wilder minute there is what they did is they taped reflective tape from 3M, which at the time was, was kind of, about that. and it reflects uh, like 100% of the light that you shine at it. And so they, they just spent the day taping up the helicopter like that, and then when they filmed it from another chopper, right, they had uh, a red light beside Shine the camera. On. Right. So, so you'd get the exact bounce back yeah, so right you to would, the lens. Yeah, so you'd get this like 100% bounce back to the lens of uh, from the helicopter. It's impressive, though, because the uh, propellers yeah. have the same thing, right? They must have wrapped the tape around the, the, the propeller tips there. That would make sense, yeah. yeah. It's impressive. It really is. The it's way such they... a great effect. And I love that it's offered without comment. It's just kind of like yeah. it's, it's so visually stark. And I don't, you know. And I honestly think it word must have gotten around Hollywood or something like that because I'm pretty sure that's they must have ripped that off for uh, Auto uh, Man. Auto Man, yeah. yeah. Oh, they for sure did. Because again, that's just a Lamborghini, a black Lamborghini with reflective tape on. But the it. Lamborghini was made to be that, to be that car. <laughs> to, yeah, to, to be that they taped up the Lamborghini Countach those lines. Oh yeah, you couldn't have done that with a with a Corvette or a Ford. No, absolutely not. But uh, uh, yeah. But we shall not speak we shall not of speak. Auto Man. We shall not speak of Auto Man. Uh, if you are curious and you want to go check it out, please don't. <laughs> go catch up on uh, uh, Riptide yeah, and Scarecrow and Mrs. Scarecrow King. Scarecrow and Mrs. King. That's, that's time, time better spent. So Dillinger lays it out. Alan Bradley takes a seat in front of Dillinger's desk. Yeah. And he has to be sitting at least fifteen feet away from him. It's quite a ways. It's it's like you'd have to raise your voice to to hear each other unless the acoustics in that uh, place are, are are are. It's pretty far back. It's, it's not in front of the desk. No, it's like, it's more accurately described as facing the desk, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he lays it out, talking about how someone's been tampering, so they've had to shut down access. And Alan claims it's not him mentioning that he doesn't even balance his checkbook on downtime and that he has an abacus at home for that, which I think is a pretty wild and strange claim. It is, given that in 81, 82, there's probably decent Texas instruments that you could have well, used. It's, it's, well, there's a, here's an, an aside here. So he talks about 
an abacus and uh an abacus is also called a counting frame mm-hmm. and it was used in uh the ancient near east europe china russia centuries before the adoption of the written arabic numeral system and the exact origins are still unknown it's like lost in the mists of time um they come in different designs like bead frame is the sort of the most cons uh, the sort of common one other designs such as the japanese soroban have been used for practical calculations involving several digits. There's a bunch of different ones. What do you got here? There are usually numerous different methods to perform a certain type of calculation, which may include basic operations like addition and multiplication, or even more complex ones such as calculating square roots. And some of these methods may work with non-natural numbers such as 1.5 or three quarters. So they're very, very useful. Yep. Um, they're still used that's quite a thing. bit in China and Japan. Many, today. yeah, people still use calculators and computers, but abacuses are still relatively common in in some countries. Merchants, traders, and clerks, some parts of Eastern Europe, Russia, China, and Africa still use abacuses, and they're still used in schools to teach uh, math to kids. It's kind of like um, the ancient version of the slide rule. I know, yeah, there yeah. are engineers that say they can do stuff faster on a slide rule. No doubt, turning to a computer, like turning to a the you know a calculator or their computer, they can and just whip out the slide rule and do some quick math with that. Uh, it also mentions that this, if people have visual impairments and oh, they yeah. can't use a calculator, they can use a, they can use an abacus. That makes good sense. Yeah, right. Which I was like, oh yeah, it's very tactile. It's a very tactile thing. A, it is a very strange thing for a programmer, though. Programmer guys tend to be kind of technical guys. Well, this is an aside that I was you know, I was going to save for the for the later on part for the save it for later on. Yeah, I'll save it for save later. Save it for later on. It pertains directly to this, but we'll, okay. we'll, come, we'll, we'll come back to it. And I just think that David Warner is so good at this role. Yes. You know, because he's so, he's oily, but professional. He's <clears throat> villainous, but not mustache twisting. He's like supercilious, but untrustworthy. And uh, he is he's poker faced. I don't know how he perfectly communicates to the audience. This is a fake mask that I'm wearing and I hate this guy and I'm above him and I'm being super friendly to him right now. But you can see right through the act and I'm a huge jerk. Like that is so, I think, really hard to portray as well as he does. Yeah. Because um, he's, al- he's almost convincing. Like like you said, with, with the dead-eyed smile in, yeah. the, in the next minute, right? Like That's a very deliberate move he makes that way. But a lot of time... Um, <sighs> Who was it? I don't know if it's a Michael Caine thing or not, but I'm pretty sure at least if, if he was one of the people that I've heard have done this a lot, where he was telling somebody, some some younger actor, the advice he got from was if you don't know what to do at a particular bit, don't try to force it or or do what you think you're supposed to do. Do nothing. Yeah. And the audience will read into it. They'll fill in the blanks. Yeah. And I think a lot of David Warner is just him blank facing at stuff. And people fill in the blank. Like we know what yeah. the scene is, we know what the relationship is. We feel, and every once in a while, he has to do the the smile with no crinkles in the corner of his eyes to go. Sounds great, and we go, it's not great. He's not it's happy not, at all. He's, he's lying. He's not happy. <laughs> he's not happy. It, it's, it doesn't come up in this minute, but yeah, we get to all this, and then uh, Alan leaves, and he, he takes that moment where he goes, Ugh, "Crap," because he knows. The MCP is about to tear a strip That's off. It. Christopher Blummer, I think, one of the one of those uh, all time British mm-hmm. actors, he would talk about how he would have these pauses, 
And people would say, wow, it's fantastic. You really look like you're thinking and coming up with the lines. And he's like, yeah, I was like desperately trying to remember <laughs> what? what my lines were. <laughs> there is a, I wish I could give proper credit, but it was a an academic example of cinema where they took a, a neutral shot of a woman okay. looking down. Yeah. And they showed it to people, but right after the shot of, of her looking down at blank faced, they would put a shot of a baby mm -hmm. and other people would see it and it would be a shot of a pie. And depending on what they put after it, people just went like, oh, she really loves her baby. Yeah. Or, oh, she's really hungry. Like it, she was emoting nothing specific to or what they were about to put, put like, in. Put a body there. And it's but like, what they know, edited yeah. in after and the fact that she was blank enough that people would just fill in the blanks themselves. Yeah. So yeah, it's a uh, wish I was an actor. I'd love to actually try that to see if it worked. But I'm no, not. No, we so. could. We I mean we could do that. You know, just do a slow pull in on your face while you're playing video games or something like that. So you've got a somewhat, somewhat distant oh, look, and then uh, and then add either scary music or happy music. And yeah, see what people. It's fun watching. It'd be hard you, to be if objective. If you pull but. pieces out of a movie, how things change. Yeah, it, the music will change how things are. Well, like recut the, the big trailer recut. Uh, yeah, it's a perfect example. Right? It's a great example. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Shining was that first. The, the Shining the first was uh, actually the earlier one that I saw was um, West Side Story as oh. a zombie horror. Oh, it's a zombie horror. That's right. I remember that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Uh, so let's see. Alan talks a little bit. Uh, oh yeah, he asks Alan what he's working on. Alan talks a little bit about Tron and how it's a security program that finds anything coming in or out of Encom that's not scheduled. And he mentions that he said it on it. He said, "I sent you a memo on it," which is what MCP will give him crap for. Is obviously he missed. He didn't pay attention to the memo. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here we like a memo is short for memorandum in a business office, and I guess it's just. It, analog email like the, the businesses used to just send memos to each other instead yeah. of uh instead of actual email. the in tray people would have the in and out tray where your mail would go and then memo memorandum letters would go in and that's how you kept on top of everything like i said yeah. email has completely erased the need for memos etc yeah. although interestingly enough a lot of times given that email is also conversational or project organizational memos oftentimes companies in the subject line instead of re or whatever will memo meaning yeah this is a this this is a different caliber of email than you know telling your wife you'll pick up milk on the way home yeah and they used to uh, uh the old email programs at that time would require some like both people to be online at the same time oh so they would be like a messaging like an actual messaging thing this whole thing of like sending an email and then reading it later uh, that really didn't come into wide usage until after this movie was made. So there was oh, yeah. still, or I think it was probably at that it was probably happening at the time, and there was probably a lot of proprietary messaging services. So how there. would it have worked, given that his desk is the paperless desk to the extreme, to the extreme? But at the same time, and Alan has said definitively, "I did send it to you." I don't see any memos <laughs> anywhere near that desk. There's no. no, there's no in tray on one side of that desk. Uh, all right. Well, you know what? He didn't have much of a role. That would have been let's so just, funny if he's like, I sent you a memo on it, and David Warner just splayed his hands out at his desk and looked around like, do you see any memos on this <laughs> desk, buddy? Like, We'll pin it on his assistant. 
yeah. who left earlier. He's the one who gets the paper and then decided whether he should see it or not. As as his lieutenant was leaving, oh, he he fields his his, his he, oh there's a oh I can wait till Monday and then he gets on the elevator anyway. Incoming memo from Alan Bradley. <laughs> Dillinger sends back <laughs> new desk. Who dis? New desk. New desk. Who's this? But that brings us to the differences between the novel and the screenplay. Oh, okay. Lay it on me. In the novel, when he enters the office, Mm -hmm. Dillinger is lit from below by his desk. Ah. So he's evil, evil Dillinger looking demonic. And in his inner monologue, he looks down on Alan for being an honest square shooter who doesn't stand a chance in the shark-infested waters of the corporate elite. He's just like, you're a good guy. That's why you are food for us. You know, like he's just... Yeah, Dillinger is in the movie portrayed as a guy who, who's a programmer, right? But yeah. understand, but not a good programmer. Not a good programmer, no. Just good enough to know what he should be going after. And that's why he's like scared of Flynn because he knows that he got his power through theft and betrayal. Yeah. Not through talent. Yeah. But, or a talent for theft and betrayal, but like not through programming uh, genius. Yeah. And so he knows that's his Achilles heel. Like when it comes to an honest fight, he's he's boned. He's hooped. Yeah. yeah. It was also a good motivation for handing over so much power to the master control program. Yeah, for sure, right? Now here's the question for you. Doesn't really come up in this, I guess, but is the master control program an AI or just a tool? Is an AI. You think? Well, that's another sort of conceptual thing is yeah conceptually all the programs are ais yeah sort of if they were in the like the actual write write up of the original screenplay in the original novel is like in the future we have created ai programs to do our bidding all right so we're watching the movie and we see it as a present day to it's become an allegory past. it's become a metaphor it's become an allegory but in the original thing the idea was is it was set further ahead okay uh, or maybe not further ahead but that the but that the programs were literally ais that were okay. running around so it wasn't like it became in the, in the movie that that got realized that the, okay. any any program you create is metaphorically alive it gets very sort of it spiritual. also explains a lot of why they rep, they uh, resemble in the visual representation, they yeah. resemble the, their creators. Yeah. But, uh, except for the MCP. But that's not how AIs work at all. No. Yeah, the no. MCP is a bit of a mystery. Like, no, the, the, the final shot there, and, and you never know. You never know who created them. Just something that kept gobbling up other functions. Yeah. As he says, as Dr. Walter Gibbs says in a later moment, I remember when it was just a chess program. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's a whole other... Okay, but the death of the MCP Wait, when did War old. Games come out? Maybe we can tie this in. Oh, maybe we can tie it in. I can tie it in to some, some sweet, sweet, sweet... Well, do you want to... Okay, there's this one one other thing I wanted to talk about. Sure. And this is a, a pretty... It's a pretty... Uh, where, where are we at for time? What do we got? The difference between the screenplay and the novel is that instead of claiming to have an abacus at home, he says, I have a Honeywell at home for that. So he does, does have a, a little mini computer. Yeah, and he, or he did... calculator at home. Yeah, and so that's... I guess maybe they couldn't. They didn't get the rights to use Honeywell in the movie, and they used an abacus instead. They changed it to abacus. He could have just said calculator. He could have just said calculator. Although I think they're trying. Well, it's weird because they're Honeywell suggests that he's got his own personal, small like personal computer at home. Yeah, which would do way more than just a calculator. But then by saying abacus, it's like you can't 
do you can do the math, but you can't do the file storage and yeah, organization of I a computer. Abacus sort of <clears throat> shows that he's still got a foot in the real world. Yeah. And that he's impervious to electronic attack. And that like he can still this that that he's um he's still strong. I don't know. There's something there's something there where he doesn't have a reliance yeah. On a computer program in the same way that Dillinger does. Dillinger probably doesn't even know how to use an abacus. Well, that's what I was about to say. It also shows off he he has a, a very good understanding of programming because that's all an abacus is, is basically using the beads as registers. And if you know how they work and you can read them, you can put in numbers and yeah. get a number out. I mean, yeah. it's it's obviously not going to write your screenplay or <laughs> you know you write a letter to grandma. But in terms of putting in even very big numbers, if you know how to read, yeah. like if you know how to represent the numbers in very power- and read the stuff back, super powerful. It's super powerful, and that's again. Well, I don't know how to use an abacus. Like, no, I think it was sort of shown to me uh, when I was a kid. Yeah, but I didn't uh, super duper remember. No. Uh, it's also actually, it does nicely kind of fit in with, uh, that, the one little image of the, the Japanese, uh, oh yeah, sure, too. It sure. Also, it, it actually, it's a nice nod that maybe it's part of his, uh, his, uh, Interest. Japanophilia. His Japanophilia. <laughs> or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And actually, it, the funny part is, I think the other problem would have been at that time, if you had said, I have a Honeywell for home for that, most of the audience would have went, a what? Yeah, for sure. And that's, yeah, because that's the thing. Like, what was there? Honeywell. This, I did a little research on Honeywell and uh, I found it to be a little freaky <laughs> because. It's an it, old school name. It was founded in 1906. Yeah. And it goes back to 1885 when a guy, Albert Butts, invented a thermostat for the coal furnaces called a damper flapper. <laughs> and then he, he founded the Butts Thermoelectric Regulator Company. Fell out with the investors, transferred the patents to a legal firm, formed Consolidated Temperature Controlling Company. They renamed and then they merged and then they became Honeywell and became the Honeywell Heating Specialty Company. And they got, they went around and around and around and they've changed their names and they merged and they acquired, they acquired a GE's process control business Mm. and, uh, taking over responsibility for GE's ongoing Multix operating system project, which greatly influenced the Unix operating system. Um, And then they got into the hard disk drive market. And then from 1961 to 78, they expanded into defense, aerospace, and computing. That's where I first heard of them. During and after the Vietnam era, Honeywell's defense division produced a number of products, including cluster bombs, missile guidance systems, napalm, and landmines. Yeah, like and then Some, they, sometimes a company starts making uh, uh, rubber boots and then ends up making you know really great cell phones. Other companies make a thermostat <laughs> regulator and end up making you know napalm. So and it's <laughs> kind of like they remind like the Rockwell retro encabulator spoof on YouTube. Yes, like I think that's directly related to Honeywell. I Quite think possibly, Rockwell, you know, because they're no small shakes. I'm, I'm they're I'm, still I'm, they're still pulling in. I'm piggybacking you here. They're they they employ. Nearly 120,000 people yeah. as of two years ago. And a revenue, an annual revenue of $41 billion. That's right. So you had those in your notes too. I don't yeah. mean to be stealing no, no, your notes, there, but that is insane. There. Yeah, they're listed as a Fortune 100. Still. A Fortune 100 is kind of crazy. Still. They're still. And they're wildly diversified. Yeah. And they got into banking machines. 
Yeah. You know, and they got into, uh, what are they, they, yeah, they purchased in 1975, they purchased Xerox data systems <laughs> whose Sigma computers had a small but loyal customer base. Uh, do you want to remember we were talking about uh, the name Encom? Yeah. And the weirdness of co- company names. Yeah. So some of the acquisitions, this starts in 2017, moving yeah. backwards. Next nine. Next nine. Comdev. Yeah. Intelligrated. There it is, right? Uh, Movalizer. Seals, spelled S E E L Z E. What? Seals. Seals. Oh, these are great. Incom. Incom. I N N C O M. Just about the same as Encom, right? Metrologic. There's yeah. some great ones. XOR, Activi, Burtech. Like, just, oh. You put a tech or an N or com anywhere and it's just, yeah. you can put whatever you want. It says, uh, you could be Duncan. Duncan. In 1955, Honeywell started a joint venture with Raytheon called Datamatic to enter the computer market and compete with IBM. And, and Raytheon f- is another big, uh, uh, military. Uh, oh yeah. Country. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So their first computer, the Datamatic 1000, <laughs> was sold and installed in 1957. And through most of the 1960s, Honeywell was part of a group of companies called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh wow! Which is a Disney tie-in. Oh, yeah. But IBM was Snow White, and the Dwarfs were the seven smaller corporate computer com- companies, which was Burroughs, Control Data Corporation, General Electric, Honeywell. NCR, RCA, and Univac. And later, when their number had been reduced to five, they were known as the Bunch after their initials Burroughs, Univac, NCR, Control Data Corporation, and Honeywell. I'm looking at some of the ones they made, and they range from like miniature, like corporate level ones, like, you know, the stand up tape readers and all that, and a terminal off to the side to yeah. home terminals, but they're the giant frog things it's- like he was using. I'm like, he must be getting paid decent because those things were not cheap to pick up. Well, he throws it away like a Honeywell is nothing. Yeah, and that's like not a not a cheap thing. And you wouldn't use it to just calculate your no your 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 that's downtime. But it's just the company itself is such as I don't want to say sinister or scary, but it's just it's what you think of in terms of a monolithic yeah corporation with its fingers and tons of pies. They probably make the voting booths, you know, yeah. like at a, and they have lots of influence and they're very rich and they're worldwide and they go back to the turn of the century and you're like this is this is proper secret billionaire like when they whenever they had like a like an economic summit in vancouver they would have you know bill gates or steve jobs or somebody like that come through or the head of a corporation or the head of a country but there was also like billionaire number 86 yeah it's like when you see the every once in a while people throw around the the chart of food companies. And yeah. Like oh, there's Kraft, and then you suddenly realize that Kraft is one of, you know, twelve companies. That under each one of them they own six or seven companies, and if you look up, are owned collectively by three companies. Yeah. Then those three are owned by one company. Yeah. And at the top of that pyramid, there's a CEO that started it and is making millions per minute like he's yeah. just generating cash like no tomorrow That's just like, by sitting there owning all these other things when people say that like you know 90 percent of the world's wealth is traceable to like 15 people it's not like a conspiracy it's a matter of public record it's like yeah it's right yeah. it's right there it's right there go look <laughs> that's right mm-hmm. there go look 
Yeah, that's uh, well, that's so, crazy pants. That was weird. That that Honeywell rabbit hole really uh, really freaked me out <laughs> from the screenplay. I was like, this is wild. Just buying stuff willy nilly, shedding stuff willy nilly, merging willy nilly, name changing. Did anybody doctor the script? Like, was there a second wave? There's Disney two. Guy the, or the the Bonnie Bird, I think, is the other person that's credited with the screenplay, along with uh, along with Steven Lisberger, and she feels like she kind of got a bit of a rough. Because I think, I think probably she did. Yeah. She's got a co-story credit or something, and she's like, "I wrote it." You know, like, so she's pretty bitter about that. Bonnie it's McFerd, f- gosh, gonna... it's funny because I'm trying to remember. I, I I would imagine that Honeywell is like the uh, the initial guys because they're computer guys. So yeah, yeah, a Honeywell would mean something to them, and she probably came along later and beat whatever their thing was into shape. And along the way, went nobody knows what a Honeywell is. Yeah, let's not only does nobody know, but it's also a registered trademark name. And let's just yeah. and calculator sounds dumb. You know, she she's very likely the person at a level that's thinking through a lot of these things we're noticing that yeah. how they nicely link together. So, yeah. well, that about brings us to the end of this minute. Well, this has been fun. It has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful having you. You know, if we want to come back for some more minutes in the future, then it'd be lovely yeah. to have you. Sure. Yeah, that's 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 a ways down the line. There's <laughs> lots of good stuff coming down the line. Oh yeah, so much good stuff. Yeah. So where can uh, people find you if they want to hear more of your daring wordplay and moral fortitude? Well, I'm probably going to go home and yeah. have lunch. <laughs> and uh, Easiest is, uh, I'm pretty sure if you type into Google, Ghostbusters Interdimensional Crossrip, yeah. it'll throw you at, you know, there at iTunes or Troy's uh, website that hosts it, Ghostbusters HQ, mm-hmm. uh, you name it. Uh, and if you want to go look at my game stuff, uh, you can, like I said, search on Steam for Kerberos production, Productions, yeah. K-E-R-B-E-R-O-S. Uh, and if you just want to see me, my Twitter is Castwar, C-A-S-T-E-W-A-R. That's it. Nice. I post dumb stuff all the time. Come say hi. If you want to get in touch with us, check out more at TronologicallySpeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at TronologicallySpeaking or send us an email at TronologicallySpeaking at gmail.com. Or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Tron Minute by Minute Listeners page. And uh, as always, special shout out to the Star Wars Minute, the ones who started this all. And uh, go to moviesbyminute.com and check out their huge and growing list of other movies that have already been done minute by minute by dedicated people out there. And if you don't see your favorite there, take it on. Do it up because it's a lot of fun to do. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to say end of line on three. Absolutely. All right. One, two, three. End End of of line. line.